Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Good evening. From Coolidge, Arizona, it's a study in Daniel. As we continue in our study, episode number 38, it's the uh, March the 7th, 2019. But there's always room for Bible study, regardless of the date or the time. That's my policy. Um, I'd like to welcome everyone to the study. Of course, um, we are going through the Old Testament book of Daniel. We are in chapter 11, and uh, chapter 12 is the final chapter. And chapter 12 almost is a continuation of chapter 10. As a matter of fact, I was just noticing how if you go from the last verse in chapter 11 right into the first verse of 12, you would be wrong if you think those things just fit together perfectly. They don't, and it, and there's no reason why they should because there, there isn't any time setting given in chapter 12, although it's during the same vision that we find in chapter 10. So it's a continuation of that. And of course, within that chapter, chapter 12, we will see the conclusion of the end of time as, it, as it's associated with the Jewish people and the first covenant. And even in this chapter, chapter 11, we, we find uh, remarks concerning uh, uh, times and uh, the ends of things and the beginnings. And uh, you've got to realize that uh, uh, one from a, when a king begins to when he ends, it's the beginning and end of time in, in, a, in a way. And some people live within those time frames, so we have to be careful of this terminology. As we left off last, um, last time we met, last week, I believe, we were in the uh, time frame of around 190 B.C. And as I've said before, our, um, our study in, in chapter 11 is going to take us all the way to about... Um, oh, about uh, 45, or about 44 B.C., actually, 45 B.C. Quite a, We have a 100-year break in this, the way that I see it, as we get uh, on towards the end of the chapter. But that's why we don't pick up chapter 12 right at that point. Um, although, as we go on in chapter 12, we go past that time, and get closer uh, to the year of uh, the 80 year of 70. So let us begin uh, where you are in Daniel chapter 11, verses 18 and 19. I think we'll go ahead and read those just to get us started off. And remember this time frame. This is during the reign of Antiochus the Great. And it says, And he shall set his face to come in 
with the force of his whole kingdom and shall cause everything to prosper with him. And he shall give him the daughter of women to corrupt her, but she shall not continue, neither be on his side. Verse 18. And he shall turn his face to the islands and shall take many and cause princes, princes, not princess, but princes, to cease from their reproach. Nevertheless, his own reproach shall return to him. Then he shall turn back his face to the strength of his own land. But he shall become weak and fall and not be found. Now we'll end there. And there's a whole lot of time uh, in way of years, not many years, but a number of years than just what we've read here. Um, and of course, there's no names given or anything, but we know from history, and there's little debate about who this is speaking of, uh, all of the uh, people, the, the princes, the, uh, uh, the men and women, even the places, the isles, where would the isles be? Well, they would be in the Mediterranean, uh, and they are. So Antiochus the Great turns from Egypt. Remember, he'd just been to Egypt. He's, he's been patching things up, his, uh, the marriage into his family now with Ptolemy. Uh, he's trying to, to create a political situation where they won't side with Rome and give him more trouble because he doesn't want the Romans interfering with his conquests anywhere he wants to go. Uh, it's a good plan. doesn't work out the way exactly as he wants. But the, uh, the Septuagint uses the word coastlands or isles um, and different translations have different things. But we, we know that it was a naval campaign. He had a large navy, as did also Rome at that time and Egypt as far as that goes. But he went against the Isle of Rhodes and that one we've heard of. Samos, Kofan, uh, Phocia, some of those names we don't recognize, but they have n newer names that, that we, uh, we know now. But the isles in uh, south of uh, what we call Asia Minor, those islands through there, and others. So there are other smaller islands, of course, that had uh, settlements and, uh, and even... Um, uh, military aspects and, and military reasons for being there. But all of this was his, his doing his part for a real bid to defeat the, as it was known then, the Republic of Rome and to gain control uh, one step at a time of all of Asia. Um, they weren't settled with the millions of square miles they already conquered, they always were stretching out wherever they could, and that was just the case here. <clears throat> but he would be opposed. Now remember the angel said in this verse, a prince 
for his own behalf shall cause the reproach offered by him to cease. And this refers to, um, uh, I believe, uh, a man who, whose name is uh, Lucius Cornelius Scripio. Uh, some say the man's name uh, was Marcus Galbrio. Uh, there's some, some difference in the historical idea here. But the Romans pushed back against the Seleucid king, Antiochus. And they defeated him first in Theroplane, which is a city, ancient city as far as we're concerned, in Greece. There was a battle there. The uh, Romans pushed him back there. And then they completely routed him at Magnesium, which is in Asia, Asia Minor as we call it. This happened in 190 B.C. So uh, within this time frame, a short time frame, uh, these things occurred. Now all of this was at the hands of most historians believe, uh, a general called Scorpio, um, also called a prince. The generals were princes in those days, um, and many times they would go in different directions and come home to uh, Italy to war against each other for dominance. That was the that was the normal in those days, all the way through even into the uh, later days a couple of hundred years later even. Second, Antiochus had to, as it's called, sue for peace. Um, because, and not only that, but he had to retreat in a hurry, which caused a real true disaster for him. So, Scorpio was interested in retrieving honor of the Roman name because the disgrace that Antiochus the Great had given the Romans before was now turned back on himself. And, and we, we, we find this is the case. Uh, Antiochus was forced to quickly withdraw his forces from all the cities on the uh, Helles part, which is, a, which is the, the whole area uh, facing Greece, um, in the water area. In his hasty flight, of course, he was also forced to leave much of his military equipment and supplies, leaving him very weak. As a matter of fact, uh, all of his elephants and and um, uh, just the things that he had, he had to leave because he had to retreat in a hurry. So, Rome uh, accepted his uh, his bid for peace, but the provisions were well. They were they were hard to bear. Antiochus the Great um, did agree to these things because he needed to at that time. He surrendered all of his possessions west of uh, Tarsus, and we know that's the city that's actually in eastern uh, Asia. Um, which left 
really was bringing him all the way back actually to Armenia and Syria. He was to stay in the east of uh, Tarsus while and, and, le- and leaving all the rest to the Romans and to the others that lived there peaceably with the Romans. Not only that, he was inscripted to defray the expense of the war <laughs> to the Romans. You know, that, there's an idea for current times. Uh, nonetheless, we don't find much of it happening. But he had to repay these things, not only he, but his sons that followed him, paid on this for many, many years. Um, and as I said, he lost uh, much, many of his goods that would have, would have made him more treacherous in battle. Also, he was not allowed to keep more than 12 ships, and I believe at one point he had 150. So uh, this was a great defeat. Uh, Not only that, the Romans required, in way of, I guess, good faith, that Antiochus the Great deliver 12 hostages. Uh, Later on, some, some say it was 20 hostages, but... Twelve hostages, and one of them had to in, had to be one of his sons. So this included the Antiochus Epiphanes was the son that went first to live in a residence in Rome. I believe the uh, term was three years at a time, and then they'd be replaced by twelve more. Um, I don't know if we can. Uh, put together the the uh, turmoil here of this, but th- this would have been on a grand scale. Um, and, and it seems that uh, this was upsetting. At least most of this was to the north of Israel at that time, and they weren't being horribly affected by it at this time, although things would change in that aspect. Um, let's look, uh, read, reread verse 19 again, because uh, we're coming back to it. Then he shall turn back his face to the strength of his own land. Some versions say his his own fortress. But he shall become weak and fall and not be found. And you know, in this terminology, not be found means uh, he's expired. And this is a, didn't take long to say that, uh, but it, it did occur in about 187, I believe, B.C. So not long after this whole thing, about three years, very much weakened, Antiochus the Great returns to his own land, but he's weak because he's lost his military prowess, and he will fall. And then that happens also, and be not found. And, but in fact, he and his entire army, those that were left, were killed by the people of Elamas, which is a region that he'd went to to plunder their goods. Uh, he did so, but he, he paid with his life and, and those that were with him. But before these things had happened, his son, Seleucus, 
uh, fellow patter has was chosen as his successor and as I said that time frame is about 187 BC okay so all through these verses clear through verse 45 we're going to find historical things written uh, in in basically figurative language in a sort. Remember, uh, prophetic writings can be very poetic in their terminology, in their descriptions. As a matter of fact, that's how prophecy is usually written, uh, with um, uh, that sort of language. And we find that in this place, though we don't find exact things, but in history we can associate most of this very accurately with the history that we know of that's been recorded. Mostly, in this case, uh, in this time period, uh, between the four generals of Alexander and their beginning of their kingdom, and their kingdoms about 322, 320 B.C., all the way to Julius Caesar, the Romans, where, where they become dominant, this history is recorded very accurately by um, Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century A.D., and uh, the Maccabees, the writing in the Apocrypha of the Old Testament, 1st Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees in particular, and, and there's also things in the following 3rd uh, and 4th Maccabees, not as quite as, as meaty as 1st Maccabees, for sure. So um, just remember that's the case. And there is absolutely reams of reading to be done on all of these things because some of this history, um, according to the people involved, goes very deep into the, uh, the history of the, of the various people involved that aren't really recorded or necessary here in this scripture because remember, all this history that we're learning and, and kind of relating is all in here just so we can see how it affected the people of Israel. And one comment from myself is that the people didn't fare too well. Uh, they became associated with the wrong people uh, oh, they had the they had the idea of trying to trying to go with the one that they thought was winning at that time, and then it would go the other way. They kept going back and forth. But you got to remember, as we read last week, they were being punished by God by by deserting their position and their their community. You see, their covenant called for a community of godly people under the law, and doing these things regardless of the hostilities that would come their way. Uh, but they weren't doing a good job of this. And I think that's, that's what we, we find here in, in these passages, especially chapter 11. And it's actually chapter 12, too, we find similar things going on at a later time. So Daniel 11.20 um, Let's see what it says. Now remember, Antiochus the Great 
is now deceased. And it says, And there shall arise out of his root one that shall cause a plant of the kingdom to pass over his place, earning kingly glory, and yet in those days shall he be broken, yet not openly, nor in war. That word openly in the Alexandrian uh, uses the idea of face-to-face. In other words, not in a a scrimmage face-to-face where he was encountering an opposition. Um, So something else happened, nor in a war. Okay, He was broken. Um, That is the one here from the root. Arise out of his, that is, uh, Antiochus the Great, out of the out of his family, one would arise, Seleucus Philopater, the eldest son, which was he was in a line for the uh, for the ruling position, and he reigned eleven years. During that time, um, what he's famous for at this point is uh, that he raised the taxes on the people under his charge causing much hardship. But did he have a reason for raising taxes? Well, he did. Because the Romans um, collected tribute not only at the end of the war, but collected tribute every year for 12 years after that war. And it was, uh, they, tribute was like a thousand or two thousand talents of gold, things of that sort. We're talking a lot of, lot of money, causing a lot of hardship for the people of the land. So all of this was to pay tribute to Rome for the expense of the war, reparations, I guess, for the for the war to Rome. Yet in those days. He shall be broken, as it says, not face to face or in war. Now, what happened to this man? Well, he did all sorts of things. Uh, One thing he did was, uh, one of the things that he had to do, Rome forced him to pay the expense of the temple in Jerusalem, all the expense of operation of the temple. Um which would have been considerable. But as he was doing that, he found out by some some of the Jewish people of the area that were opposed to each other that there was great fortune within the temple. So he sent in his treasurer, whose name was uh, Helodorus, I believe is how you pronounce it, He was the king's treasurer. He sent him in to investigate this into the temple. And he was struck by God as the account and carried out nearly dead, but he did survive. So, in in some time here, when this man uh, recovered, um, he had the idea that he wanted to, he wanted to be king, and uh, he poisoned 
the king. He poisoned um, Philopater and assumed the the rule there. But he was uh, unfortunately his his plot did not work out either. As it goes on, um, as the history records, he was denied this by the brother of Philopater. Remember the one of the sons that was sent to Rome for three years? Well, on his way back is when this had occurred to his brother. He found out his brother had been uh, murdered and by poisoning. So uh, his name was Antiochus IV, and he had just spent three years in Rome as a hostage, one of the twelve. Returning home, he found this out and enlisted the help of the king of Pergama, and of course that's in Asia. Uh, his name was Hermaris II, and they went together to depose uh, Herodias and install Antiochus IV, and his name was uh, Epiphanes. He was given a nickname not too long after that, uh, that was a play on his name there, and it meant the madman in their in their terminology. So he uh, he had earned he had learned a lot since the time that he went to Rome. Uh, one thing he learned that Rome was going to be a conquering power in his mind. He knew how to avoid <laughs> uh, those things and tried to. But he also uh, had great, uh, great ideas for himself as far as rule of his homeland. This king, the madman as he's known, uh, by his friends and his foe, uh, was a great oppressor of Daniel's people during his rule. And that, that's where we find most the remaining part of this chapter has to do with this particular king, Antiochus IV, or the madman. Um, now this brings us to, uh, to verse 21, which is speaking of Antiochus IV. One shall stand on his place, who has been set at naught. And they have not put upon him the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in prosperously and obtain the kingdom by deceitful ways. Now that's how they obtained the kingdom, taking it away from the murderer of his brother. He had a lot of help, very deceitful in all that he did. It doesn't say what happened to Helodius, uh, but I'm sure that he probably didn't survive these things. And this is the Antiochus Fourth, and that we read so much about um, in history. I'd like to uh, share with you something that Kurt Simmons wrote concerning this, because. As the history records, it's the, the ascension of Antiochus uh, Amphihanus, as he was known. 
but he gained that nickname uh, because of his actions. But as history unfolded after, after him, uh, much after him, back in, where there are uh, people writing during the New Testament times, uh, it was believed even by Jerome um, and, and many others that he was the so-called Antichrist. Now, unfortunately, now we know that word from, of course, from the New Testament, uh, which was many years after the reign of this king. But, of course, it's associated with him because of all the destruction that he, uh, that he was responsible for in Jerusalem. In a, in a way, the destruction was almost as great as what happened in 70 A.D. under the Romans, as, as we'll find out. But uh, their time frame, of course, is, is really off here. The motivation for taking this approach is the prophetic language concerning the time of the end. You see, wherever we run into this time of the end situation, uh, it never really tells us when this end is. So we have to do by the context and by the history, by what time in history these things were, uh, what kind of an end we're talking about here. And this certainly wasn't the end uh, of all time, as we know, because we're sitting here now. And it wasn't the end of the Jewish age either, because they went on long after the madman was gone. But in Daniel 11:27, 27, um, in 35 and 40, we, we find this terminology, and also in Daniel 12, too. These events are, are supposed to correspond with the end of the physical cosmos. End of the world, that's what that means. Well, of course, they, they don't. However, this, mis, uh, this misconstrues the scope, the scope of prophecy, which the angel specifically restricts in terms of time to the fall of the Jewish nation. You see, that's the end, the time of the end. Daniel 10, 14 and 12, 7. Now, let's read those. Daniel 10, 14 and 12.7. See, these are the prophecies in Daniel that, um, that show um, that end. Okay, you're at 10.14 here. 10.14, it says, And I have come to inform thee of all that shall befall thy people in the last days. For the vision is yet for many days. Okay, the last days have to be the last days. There can't be any more days after the last ones. You know, mm-hmm. they're not the last last days or the last of the last days. Uh, last days means there's a period of, of time that's called the last days. But if we read the New Testament clearly, we'll find that the apostles, when they preached and when they spoke, they spoke of the, the idea that they were living in the last days in reference to the last of the Jewish covenant days. That's what's spoke of here. Judah, it, Judah and Jerusalem. Judah and Jerusalem, yes. Uh, then in, in 12.7, we have uh, similar terminology. 
We haven't read this one yet, but uh, just to show it to you here. And this is the man clothed in linen that we also find in chapter 10. And I heard the man clothed in linen who was over the water of the river, and he lifted up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him that liveth forever that it should be for a time of times and half a times when the dispersion is ended, they shall know all these things. Okay. Um, this, of course, is dealing with the these times and half a times that we find in Revelation uh, in the New Testament. An end. Okay, dispersion is ended, and then they will know. That is, the Jews would know, and we know. If if the whole order of everything is has ended, why is there anything? You know, who's going to be left to know anything? That's right. Uh, so we got to be careful when we read end that we don't we don't rush to the end of things. That until we really know where we're at with that. And, and, of course, that's always been a problem. Okay. Now, we still got the issue of the so-called Antichrist. Well, when, when, when someone acts like Antichrist, now, here's one of the things. How could you attribute the, someone being the Antichrist before Christ was? You see, we're a we're hundred years before here. Well, actually, we're more like 160 years before. So it's silly uh, to attribute the Antichrist uh, to uh, Antiochus the madman, although he's acting like it as far as how he treats the Jews, okay? Although the Antichrist is, is not opposed to the Jews, but, uh, but is opposed to the Jews who have become Christians. So we have another little fly in the ointment. Now, Jerome wrote about this. As a matter of fact, Jerome actually almost corrects himself in his ideas here. But Jerome wrote this. Um, he wrote these words. These events were typically prefigured under Antiochus Ephanus so that this abominable king who persecuted God's people foreshadows the Antichrist, foreshadows, you see how that works, who is to persecute the people of Christ. And so there are many of our viewpoint who think that Domitus Nero was the Antichrist because of his outstanding savagery and depravity. Well, Nero and the emperor... He did punish Christians, but he also punished Jews who were not Christians, even the Jews that did not like the Christians. Uh, so we, we need to understand then, what is this idea of, of the Antichrist? Now, everybody always speaks to Revelation, but we find Antichrist used before Revelation is written. Let's go to, let's look at 1 John Chapter 4, uh, starting with the first verse. Remember, we're going to read about Antichrist, but it's going to say spirit. 
And John said, Beloved, that is to the Christians he was writing, believe not every spirit, but prove the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. This is the qualification. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. Verse 3, And every spirit that confesseth not Jesus is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. The spirit being what? The essence of, the character of those that were anti-Christ. Wherefore, you have heard that it cometh, and now is in the world already. Oh, now the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world already, when John wrote this epistle. Uh, This epistle being written sometime uh, between um, 60 to 65 A.D., We're not sure exactly when. So we find this, the spirit of, or this antichrist issue uh, being uh, being around long before the the word is used again in Revelation. The word doesn't necessarily, you know, point to one singular person. It's a a whole concept. It's a whole breadth of of ideas and and, uh, viewpoints towards Christ and, you know, and by relation God as well. That is, that really is, is true, isn't it? So, let's consider what then is truly Antichrist. Um, I'm kind of departing Daniel here just a minute. Um, but verse 21 brings up the idea because of the of the absolute uh, brutal work of of the madman towards the Jews in in uh, Palestine. Now I believe that the idea of the spirit of Antichrist is more than just one man, as Alex said. Not just one man. Everybody wants it to make to be one person, you know, so they can group it all up. But that's not how it occurred. That's not what the spirit of Antichrist was, the thinking of. So what is Antichrist? I believe it's any group, any council, or any country or peoples that oppose the message of God. The offer of God to all who would come to him through Jesus Christ. You see, that's the spirit of Antichrist. That's Antichrist. To prohibit people from from knowing of Christ, from being a follower of Christ, who was the Son of God. And uh, look at that. Let's let's see what Jesus said about about this himself in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6. We'll read that one first, and then we'll go back to chapter 6. 14, 6. Jesus speaking to the apostles here. He spoke this to the apostles so the apostles could pass this on to us. And Jesus saith unto 
uh, him, one of the apostles that asked him a question. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. That rather, uh, that rather limits the access, doesn't it? As a matter of fact, I've heard folks that should know a lot better uh, living in, the, in Christendom with high positions in Christendom say that's the most unfortunate verse in the Bible because it's so, it limits the love of God. Well, no, it doesn't limit it. It defines it. Uh, but people don't like to, to follow God's word in a way that will bring them real salvation. John 6, verse 41 this is Jesus speaking to the Jews. Uh, and we're just breaking into his narrative here for it's very long in this chapter. <clears throat> and every time he'd teach them something, they would start murmuring amongst themselves about how can this be? Well, the Jews therefore murmured concerning him because he said, I am the bread which came down out of heaven. Remember what he said? I am the bread of life. Oh, they didn't like that. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How doth he now say, I come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father that sent me draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Uh, we're going to read through 47. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone that hath heard from the Father and hath learned cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he that is from God. He hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth have, hath eternal life. And then he goes on to the next thing he says that they don't really appreciate, I am the bread of life. But he's telling them something that's very important. Uh, to oppose God today by simply ignoring Jesus. Many say, I, I, I believe in God, but I do not believe Jesus but God is making it very clear. Unless you come through his son, you, you have no way to me. Because it is Jesus that is the, uh, the bread of life. It's Jesus that, uh, that has these things. And by the way, the, the word here, draw, in verse uh, 45, I think, Let's see. 40, 44. No man can come to me, no man can come to Jesus, except the Father that sent me draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Now, how does the Father draw a person? They're drawn by the very words of Jesus of Nazareth as he preached for three and a half years, 
They were drawn to God through Jesus by the apostolic ministry, by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth that was now the the Messiah of the Jewish people and soon to be the Savior of the Gentiles also. God draws men through his Son, through the gospel. It doesn't mean he reaches out and drags them. The word's not drag, it's draw. It's a different Greek word. There is a word that means you're drugged against your will. This is not that word. There's a number of words that that are used for draw. This is not that word. Um, Because (laughs) if it was, it would mean something else. But it's not that. All right. It, it, the the word literally means here that the, a person is is uh, drawn by uh, your your intellect and experience and the things that you have heard and seen. But isn't that what the Bible says about uh, here uh, the gospel? We're we're saved through the the hearing of the word by the preaching of the word. Of course, that's what draws men and women unto God through Jesus Christ. So I think that that should settle that issue of the Antichrist and stop, you know, they made a, it makes a very sensational movie to have a new Antichrist every season. Uh, but in fact, it's a, it's a misconstrued concept uh, when it's been, it's been given a personality of one person. Um, but like I said, it makes a good movie, but it certainly does not line up with the scripture. And where else is Antichrist mentioned outside of the word of God? It's talking about an issue. It's talking about a, a thinking uh, that people have. As a matter of fact, this man, Antiochus IV, the madman, uh, indeed is... The, the man in verse 21 called the vile person. The vile person. Uh, th- that is who this person is. <clears throat> because when, as we go on, we'll be looking at some of the things that he did towards the Jews and the things he had done. Um, as a matter of fact, Antiochus IV boasted amongst his own people and his friends uh, in the Jewish people, and he had many, that the religion of Jehovah had ceased in Israel. Well, that was his goal. Uh, that was his goal uh, because he, uh, under for some reason, he had a real uh, uh, burr under his saddle concerning the Jews. He did not like uh, the religion of Jehovah. And because being the historian himself, he understood the, the history of the Jews, and he was not a fan. Let's put it that way. Now, as we move on from verse 22, I need to explain something here in way of the historical aspects. Um, from Daniel 11:22 through verse 39, 
we will be reading of the exploits of Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, as he's known. And his reign was from 175 through 164 B.C. Uh, that's a, it's hard to believe all the things that he did in that short period of time. But, but he was a busy boy, and it wasn't, um, it was all about war. It was all about going from one place to another. And, of course, he had to deal with the Romans um, to, the, uh, to the west and the Egyptians to the south, and in the middle was Palestine. And um, he, he really had his way with them, too. He, he was from the northern kingdom? He, he was from the northern kingdom. He's from the Seleucid kingdom. And then, as we go on, now there's some controversy here about does this change. Uh, some of our commentators believe that Antiochus IV, uh, the madman, is portrayed all the way through chapter 11, clear to the very end. But because of the historical aspects of the other things that uh, happen from verse 40 through 45, especially verse 42, I think that we can attribute these things, these references here, to Rome entering the scene, if you will. If you think about the, um, the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, and the powerful iron legs of Rome. This is where Rome becomes the iron legs, if you will, uh, in all the world. They, they have little problem dealing with Egypt, uh, but, they're, but they're dealing with the kingdom, king of the north and the king of the south, and also they're dealing with Palestine all at once. And so we can take this reference and we can attribute it to uh, Gaius Julius Caesar, as he was known. This is his time period. And we skip almost 100 years uh, in, in time. Julius Caesar was assassinated, as so many of these people were, in 44 B.C. But even then, you see, we're some, the way I figure, since the birth of Christ was in 2, 2 B.C., we're about 42 years at the death of Julius Caesar from the birth of Christ, which is, in, in light of things, a whole generation right there. So we're a generation away from the birth of Christ and neither an, almost another generation before the ministry of Christ begins. Um, in uh, 29 AD, as a matter of fact. So next time we, we meet, we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 31 to start with. A um, lot of history, uh, a few things to attribute, but a lot of things in there about what befall Jerusalem uh, during that time frame. And believe me, they nearly... They nearly disappeared during that time period alone. Um, and it's, it's a wonder uh, 
that they survived, but thanks to the, uh, the Maccabees, the father and his five sons, uh, they, they survived by fighting back and got back on their feet. So we'll look at that next time. And if you're a history buff, you're going to love this. Uh, but remember, it's all about Daniel's people. And that would be my last word this evening. Let us pray. We thank you, Father, for not only the accuracy of your word, but the fact that we can look at these prophetic words and know that you gave them to the people to know and to read long before they occurred. That they would have opportunity, Father, to turn back to you and do the things pleasing to you. But that all these things must be fulfilled in their time. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to come together and study these words, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.